Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordy and Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Birds of prey, or raptors, have exceptional eyesight, maybe the best in the natural world. They have superb depth perception and rapid focus. Dr. Dale puts his focus this month on raptors. His guest is Dr. Clint Boll, a research wildlife biologist at Texas Tech University and a foremost authority on birds of prey. Which birds are threats to quail? And how much impact does the predation have on quail populations? For those answers and more, let's go to Dr. Dale now with this special guest. Thank you, Gary, for that fine introduction and I always appreciate the good work that you guys do over at Texas Farm Bureau to make the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast uh, approachable and listenable to our, our listeners. And uh, you know, Gary, you and I have worked together for a long time and I'm sure you're probably going to snicker when I say that sometimes over the years, I've tried to make something cutesy or good marketing with a certain phrase and it come back to bite me. Like back in 1991, when I met with a group of county agents out in Fort Stockton, Texas, and I said, guys, I'd like to do a predator appreciation day. And I got pallid stares because this was sheep and goat country. And uh, they just couldn't appreciate the satire and what I was trying to do. Appreciate and appreciation. And I tell people I've made a career out of appreciating things. And I got to stop and ask you to pause right now and let's think about the definition of the word appreciate. It can mean to value or admire highly. It can mean to judge with heightened awareness or to mean can mean to be cautiously or sensitively aware of. And I want you to uh, keep all those in mind as we move, move forward with today's podcast, because just like that predator appreciation day, sometimes when you use two words in association like that, and we're talking about quail, and if I say predator appreciation, you say, well, wait a minute now. Now, nobody has a problem if I say a quail appreciation day, but if I say a brush appreciation day or a feral hog appreciation day, well, again, it raises antennae. And today we're going to be talking about appreciating raptors. And before you think I've just lost it again, think about that phrase to judge with heightened awareness. Because as a quail hunter, the quail that we love, their, their biology, their behavior has been shaped by thousands of years of of coping with predators. And so uh, the fact that they uh, flush in a covey, the fact that they're uh, hold uh, in the presence for bird dogs and so forth, those behaviors that we appreciate, value highly, are again a function of predation. And so if you have uh, time, go back and rewind uh, to podcast number six that we did a couple of years ago called Hawks, Roadrunners, and Quails. Oh my. And you'll begin to see some of the reasons why I say appreciate. But we're going to delve into that much deeper today because we are going to speak in the words or in the uh, context of being cautiously or sensitively aware of, but also valuing or admiring highly. Now, if you're an academic or, again, you've been to college, chances are you were introduced to some Latin phrases somewhere along the way. And many of those we still use today, like carpe diem. Bonafide, cum laude, you may be going to a graduation commencement exercise here in the next month and somebody's graduating magna cum laude. Uh, semper paratus, always ready. 
Well, there's one called Sum Quique, and it means to each his own. So again, we value personal opinions, and uh, today's guest uh, is going to look at the word appreciate in Raptors, and he's certainly going to be talking about value or admire highly. So again, we appreciate the various contexts of that word, and I got to start with, or I got to finish this introduction with one more Latin phrase, and that's mea culpa. It was my fault. This is the second time that my guest, Dr. Clint Bowl, and I have gone over, have uh, recorded this podcast because 10 days ago, we talked for an hour and five minutes. And then I realized, uh oh, mea culpa, I forgot to hit the record button. So the record button is going. Uh, we are taping now. And so, welcome. Uh, to the podcast, Dr. Clint Bow. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks, Dale. It's uh, it's good to be here. And I would make note that uh, even though that other conversation was not recorded, that was a fun conversation. It was a fun conversation. Uh, we we each had a little bit of uh, to and fro a little bit, and I hope that we can recapture much of that because um, it was it made for an interesting conversation, an interesting podcast. So. Uh, just because it was my fault and I goofed up, but hopefully we can recreate much of that candor that we had the last time. Pat, tell us just a little bit about uh, where you're at and, and how you got there. All right. I am the, uh, I'm a professor of wildlife ecology and uh, the assistant unit leader for the USGS Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit. And these are uh, uh, federal offices stationed at universities. Uh, there's about 42 of them in the country. And We've been around since about 1936, um, and our mission is to facilitate graduate student level research and address the research and conservation needs of our state and federal management agencies. Um, I got started here uh, back in 2000 after I completed my postdoc. Uh, all my graduate work was on birds of prey. I did a, a master's on northern goshawks which is like a, a supercharged goss, uh, supercharged Cooper's Hawk, which uh, I'm sure many of the listeners are more familiar with. I did my doctoral work on Cooper's Hawks, then my postdoc on goshawks again. And since I've been here in Texas, I've been working on a lot of different raptors, uh, but also prairie chickens, uh, some quail work, and a lot of non-game work. So that's who I am, and that's kind of what I'm doing. Well, I was... Uh partially a product of the Co-op Wildlife Research Unit there at Texas Tech way back in 1983. And I have fond memories of the assistant co-op leader at that time, Dr. Sam Beeson. Dr. Beeson was on my graduate committee and uh, those of us in Texas that have followed, uh, especially deer or predator concerns over the years, certainly know Dr. Beeson's interest in, in coyotes and deer and things like that. And an excellent critical thinker. And anytime you're talking about a controversial topic, Critical thinking is always a, a, a nice adaptation to carry with you so you can, again, entertain your entertain your thoughts and concerns, but appreciate those of the person on the other side of the aisle. And that makes me think of Aldo Leopold. Uh, again, that's standard. Uh, that's the father of wildlife conservation. All of us have read Thinking Like a Mountain and uh, Sam County Almanac and some of those uh, great essays by Mr. Leopold. And... He, often, he said in one of them, you can't love game and hate predators. I'm going to repeat that. You can't love game and hate predators. Again, you got to appreciate uh, the whole, all the components of the ecosystem out there. And again, the fact that those predators probably had a lot to do with the characteristics of the game animals that you love, as I, as I mentioned earlier. So again, uh, Kent, tell us about how you got uh, interested. What, 
in your pursuit of raptors what what really brought you to focus on raptors birds of prey uh when i was a kid i was growing up in the mountains of western oregon and i was in about uh the fourth grade and we we're going up to our uh, the barn one time to uh to feed the horses and there's this pair of hawks circling over the, the pasture area there and uh doing that high piercing scream that uh I, I, I found to be the call of territorial red-tailed hawks. And that's what was going on. It was a mating flight between these uh, pair of red-tailed hawks. And for some reason, um, that just kind of captivated me as a little kid. And I think that, you know, pretty much all your listeners can probably relate to that. It, it may be white-tailed deer that captivated them. It might be rattlesnakes. It might be, uh, you know, quail. It could be, you know, roseate spoonbills or something. But I think a lot of us all have kind of that gateway animal that whatever, for whatever reason, kind of captures our, our interest. And, and that was it for me. And I read a lot about raptors when I was a kid. Uh, but then when I, when I graduated from high school, I had no plans to go to college or anything. I kind of put that behind me until uh, a few years later. Um, and I did go to college and some opportunities came my way that were very fortuitous and uh, kind of set me on the path. And I've been just very fortunate to be able to keep working with uh, these species that do really just intrigue me to a great extent. Well, cool. And again, uh, like you said, that, that gateway drug, if you will, for us uh, may change. In my case, it was Bob White quail. And when I heard that first Bob White whistle at my kitchen window at, year, at age five, I tell people it's been calling me for the last 63 years. And I know that, that red tail hawk scream is uh, still continues to intrigue and, and guide your efforts as well. I'll never forget when I was about, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old, my older brother and I were driving the county roads there south of Hollis, Oklahoma, hunting rabbits or anything else we'd see. And we saw a nest out in some soapberry trees about 200 yards off the road. And we walked out there and flushed a great horned owl off of it. And that had, owl had four owlets, I think that's what you'd call them. Yep. And being young teenage boys, we thought we had to take those home. And so I stood guard with a shotgun to keep mama from trying to get us. And we raided that nest. Now, this is all against the law, folks. I just have to hope the statute of limitations has moved on. But uh, we took on four great horned owls that were about the size of quail. And I tell you, I was never so happy to see something fledged to be able to fly away uh, about six weeks later. <laughs> because they worked us to death catching mice, feeding them beef liver, anything in the world. So I got great respect for a mom and daddy uh, great horned owl because they have to work hard to feed those babies. Yep, and you know, uh, John and Frank Craighead back in the 50s, uh, they did the first uh, real uh, scientific research on birds of prey. And this is, uh, they did a lot of their work up in like the Michigan, Ohio area, the upper Midwest. But they had done a, a study that really looked at raptor communities as a whole throughout the year and the volume of prey and types of prey that these different raptors took. And it was really kind of that eye-opening event for a lot of people to realize the, the value that most of these birds of prey have for you know, farmers, for ranchers, for private landowners, and just the volume of both you know, problematic rodents and, and insects that these most of these raptors take. I mean, great horned owls, red-tailed hawks, 
they take an incredible amount of uh, rodent prey throughout the year. And you know, I've, I've found uh, in great horned owl pellets, the, the pellets of material they can't digest, that they cough up. I found all kinds of things that they have eaten, everything from you know, a lot of skunks, uh, badger, uh, down to a rattlesnake skull I found in one one time. Uh, so it can be really beneficial to people. I'll quote Leopold again when he said that the urge to comprehend must precede the urge to reform. So again, our appreciation, our knowledge of things like food chains and food webs has got to make all of us just kind of pay attention and say, aha, well, I thought such and such was was really bad. Like we've done work there at the Rolling Plains Quill Research Ranch, two different master's theses there at Texas Tech on uh, what coyotes eat and uh, less than one-tenth of one percent of their diet was quail they ate more raccoons skunks feral hogs uh, badgers and one other snakes so they ate five potential predators of quail more than they ate quail themselves so again appreciate uh, the various uh, predators that that we enjoy there on our rangelands ben i want to talk to you real quickly about what i'm going to call various levels of quail threat so i know there are various groups of raptors and i want to talk about those that as people interested in quail which ones are the ones that are a threat to quail and maybe consume more birds or more quail than others do and you mentioned uh, your your gateway drug was the red-tailed hawk which i believe is called a bootio hawk Yep. So uh, talk to us about bootios and what kind of common bootios we're likely to see here in West Texas. Okay. Well, well, first off, I'd just say, Dale, that, you know, it, a lot of it comes down to with, with predator and prey, pretty much every situation. There's no individual hawk that's going to focus specifically on one prey. If there's an abundance of prey like lemmings up in the tundra, uh, yeah, snowy owls and rough-legged hawks, they're gonna focus on those because there's such an abundance, but it comes down to what's available and the encounter rates. And I, I say that to point out that any potential predator, you know, any carnivorous animal, if they get the drop on an, an another animal that's within the size range that they think they can subdue, then they may take a swipe at it and they may get lucky. Um, but that may not be the norm for them. It's an outlier. You know, I once saw a red-tailed hawk take a morning dove. Uh, and that's just, it was a bizarre occurrence that I happened to, to be witness to when I was out working with doing some work. Normally, that's never going to happen. That dove might have been hammered or uh, hampered in some way. But it's like that one-off opportunity. So basically, potentially any raptor is going to be able to capture a quail if the situation is right where that quail is exposed to it and the raptor has a, the drop on the quail, so to speak. Having said that, there are the vast majority of raptors have a very low likelihood of capturing quail to any, at any normal rate. Um, the bootios are one of those. Uh, the bootios are, uh, the, they're, they're large hawks. They primarily will be sitting on telephone poles, uh, fence poles, or even standing out in the middle of fields, or else flying in those lazy circles you see hawks doing over fields. And basically, they're waiting to see 
prey make itself available. Uh, a snake, a mouse, uh, you know, sometimes those bootios will take birds, uh, but it's not as common. Um, there's uh, there's a, a couple of bootios that are more of a woodland type hawk, like a red-shouldered hawk and a broad-winged hawk that sometimes they'll capture small birds, but usually they're finding a, a songbird nest and they're raiding that. So usually bootios are not going to be much of a threat to game birds in general, but there's always the exception to the rule. And there's always going to be that one-off where a red tail gets lucky on a pheasant or something. And again, you and I will, will thrust and parry a time or two in our, our discussion here. And again, I encourage anybody that's out, whether hunting or, or whatever, uh, I always tell our technicians and interns there on the ranch that when you're doing your daily activities, radio telemetry, whatever that may be, if you flush a hawk, regardless of what species it is, go out and uh, from that note where it flew up from and uh, check it out and see if there's any evidence of predation and if so, what that is. Uh, I've been able to see two bootios over the years, one take a blue quail and one off of a Bob White. So again, I, I realize as you've just explained, they're not a major threat. They are an opportunistic, um, or quail are an opportunistic part of their diet. So, but but we do have a lot of bootios. In fact, that's one of our more common hawks. Uh, yep. And I know a lot of people get excited sometime about this time in the spring or maybe in uh, early October when they see the Swainson's hawks migrating and they see one sitting on the bales of hay in a hay field or uh, maybe along every tee post in a fence kind of thing. <laughs> so so talk to us maybe about the Swainson's hawks. Okay, Swainson's hawks, they're, they're a pretty good sized bootio hawk. Uh, they, they winter in Argentina and they migrate all the way up here. Uh, they have what appears to be really strong site fidelity to a nest area. So the same pairs will come back and occupy those same areas. Um, we have done some food habit studies up here in the Panhandle, up at the Rita Blanca grasslands, and then also out in the uh, sand hills where uh, we have prairie chickens. And we uh, were using cameras at the nest to see what the hawks were bringing in to, to feed their nestlings. And at the, uh, the Rita Blanca grasslands over two summers, we collected, it was like 1150 prey deliveries. There was something on that order. And out of all of those, they had three quail that were brought in. And I, I went and I looked back at those data and there's um, some areas that the uh, quail forever have put in up there with some Russian olive and everything. And there happened to be one where there's a, a pair of Swainson socks nesting in a, a tree, one of the uh, few conifer trees up there. And that was the nest that happened to be getting an occasional quail because it was right there where the quail cover was that the quail were attracted to. Other than that, you know, the I mean, that was that was three prey deliveries out of over 1,100, and most of those were the different rodents, a lot of uh, Great Plains skinks uh, and other lizards. And uh, most of the birds that were brought in, which were not a lot, but most that were brought in were like meadow larks. So, you know, the and, and then at the towards the end of the season, what they bring in a lot of, and a lot of people didn't believe this until I showed them the videos, they eat a lot of grasshoppers. 
Okay, and uh, we did the same thing or similar thing uh, with Roadrunner nests because Roadrunners are something you just really never, you, you never see a nest. People have been raised in West Texas all their life and never seen a little Roadrunner or never seen a nest, but uh, we radio collared some there at the research ranch and then put to those uh, video cameras on them and so forth. And that we only had two nests monitored, but we never saw, I mean, they're always being accused of taking quail eggs or quail chicks. We never saw any evidence of birds. It was always grasshoppers. Uh, horn lizards or fence lizards or some kind of small snakes kind of thing. So again, a lot of Clint, what you do and some of what we do are basically acting in the role of myth busters and collecting evidence, hopefully objectively, that basically says, well, guys, you know, turkey's really not the issue. They're not really eating those quail chicks like you, you thought they were. So uh, <laughs> kudos to you because a lot of mis misunderstandings and some uh, heated arguments if you ever get her in the coffee shop around or whatever about uh, the role of predators. And, and I like to refer to the booty hawks, the, the broad-winged hawks, as the B-29s. They're slow and lumbering. They might catch a quail, but they're just not designed to. I want to move on to the A-10 warthogs, the harriers. So talk to me about the marsh hawks or what, what you refer to as a northern harrier. Yeah, the northern harriers, they, they pose a greater threat to quail. And it's uh, primarily because they're in, in our part of the world, they're really only around during migration and during the winter. And they are just a really mobile bird. They're constantly flying low across the landscape. And what they try to do is, as they course back and forth across these fields, they're trying to surprise prey. And so you, if you watch them, they'll just be kind of cruising along. Then all of a sudden, they'll just like pivot midair and drop down into the grass. Um, and that's when they, they surprise a bird or a mouse. And you know, they, they will get quail on occasion. Um, and in some circumstances, maybe, maybe more frequently than in others. One of the things that I think we need to keep in mind with this, and going back to something you said, Dale, about, you know, kind of the myth busters, I've been, I've had it said before to me that, you know, well, you're, you're biased because you study raptors. And it's like, well, you know, maybe you're biased because you study quail. I think knowing you that, uh, you know, we're both in kind of the business of just really wanting to know what reality is and then going forward with that on how we do our management and conservation and and how we do that that comes comes down to more values not what scientific reality is and um you know with the uh with the the harriers or or any quail eating bird you know the the thing to me is find out what is the reality and how much, how many quail they're actually taking out of a population. And I think that, you know, if you, if you look at, and I'm sticking with harriers here because we, we have a fairly large number of them here in the winter, they're coursing across the landscape. And basically it's a, an issue of encounter rates. What do they encounter? And then they, when they encounter something, what is their success in capturing it? And I think about, and I've, I've been thinking more about this lately, and you, know, you drive across some of these areas where, like at the Quail Research Ranch, um, you know, you have a, a known number of coveys out there. And as you drive between one area where you know there's a covey and another area that you know there's a covey, how many meadowlarks and casting sparrows and vesper sparrows and chipping sparrows and white-crowned sparrows and all these other species 
do you come across that you see out there? And I guarantee if you walked across there, you're going to see even more. And so I think something to keep in perspective is what the different abundances of prey are out there and what those encounter rates are. Um, and this is something that kind of leads me to, I think, with, with harriers in particular. And, and you sent me a picture one time of a, of a harrier at one of the feeders is when we have areas that are going to be attracting uh, a prey species into a feeder, well, those, those raptors aren't dumb. And, and so that kind of increases the level of threat, I think. Um, but I think as far as just a harrier coursing across the landscape, it's really more of an, what the encounter rate is than anything. I, I know I sit in a deer blind. I know you're a deer hunter too. And especially when you're sitting in a deer blind, it seems like you're, you're being still and you're observing sometimes fairly large areas. And uh, again, the, the harriers, the marsh hawks, as a lot of people still call them, are pretty common and you'll see them just exactly doing what you said you know just coursing back and forth at 15 feet off the ground then all of a sudden just take a nose dive in and, and at least try to capture something yep. i i have come to appreciate uh, when we hire technicians there at research ranch i have come to appreciate serious birders because serious <laughs> birders have serious cameras and they know how to use them and we had a young lady about five years ago uh, was, was in that category and she got a she snapped a photo of a male harrier and a male harrier is a beautiful bird and it's carrying off one of our radio mark bob whites you can see the leg band on the bob white so uh just again just some of the things that when you're prepared to watch and be able to capture some of those moments not just predation moments but things like that it, it's it makes our it, it gets us going i guess is what i'm trying to say yeah <clears throat> all right let's move on from the harriers and uh Let's talk about what I consider the greatest quail threat with the caveats that you've listed so far, but that's the accipiters, uh, the F-16s of the bird world, the Cooper's hawk and the sharp shin hawk. Yes, sir. The, uh, there, there's three accipiters in North America, uh, the goshawk being the largest, then the Cooper's hawk, and then the sharp shin hawk. And with accipiters, they, they, all raptors display re reverse size dimorphism in which the female is larger than the male. And there's a lot of ideas for the reasons behind that that I'm not going to go into, but but basically you have the the largest one is the female goshawk, and then a male goshawk is just a bit bigger than a female Cooper's hawk, a male Cooper's hawk is just a bit bigger than a, a female sharp shin, and a sharp shin is really small; it's about the size of a kestrel, and so a male sharp shin poses just because of size, you know, a, a quail could probably beat the snot out of a male sharp shin with its wings. Uh, a female sharp shin, they can, they can occasionally take quail. Um, Cooper's hawks, it's like if you're talking about the ecological perfect example of a, an arms race, I think you have it with the quail and the Cooper's hawks. Um, they're just, they're built for each other. And um, uh, the, the male Cooper's hawk is, uh, you know, they weigh about 300 grams or so. A female Cooper's hawk will weigh up to about 500 grams or so. And they're, they're a little bit larger in the eastern states than the western states. Um, but they, uh, you know, they are primarily bird hunters. They will occasionally take a squirrel. They'll occasionally take a chipmunk or something. Uh, but in the, uh, the work I did with them was in an urban setting. And almost everything they took there were doves and occasionally house sparrows and house finches. Um, 
in natural settings, they, I mean, it's, it's known that they, they take quail to some extent. Brian Millsap did some work out in Georgia in uh, Florida. Um, and uh, they had tracked animals year round and they monitored nests. And uh, the, they had a good idea of how many quail the Cooper's hawks would take. And if you look at it on the, based on prey delivery rates though, um, throughout the course of the year, an individual Cooper's hawk in that area uh, would take an estimated 15 plus or minus uh, quail each. But that's through the course of an entire year. Um, you know, in some of those areas, there's a lot of quail. Some areas, maybe not so much, and there's a, it's a bigger concern. Um, yeah, well, you, and I, you and I went back and forth on this last time. As a quail hunter, and I say that there's that, that an acipiter, that a cooper's hawk, is a quail's worst natural or greatest natural fear. And I equate them, if you're a fan of horror movies, to a cross between Jason and Freddy Krueger, because I've seen quail being pursued by cooper's hawks, and uh, they have this, they're flying with this blood screaming cry that uh, makes me root for the quail. I'm sure you may root for the other side, and I appreciate that. But uh, blue quail and Bob Whites, when you see them being pursued by a Cooper's hawk, uh, they're screaming bloody murder. And I say they'd rather face, and we're going to talk more about a study that you and I participated in, but I say that quail would rather face me or you with a Benelli Super Eagle uh, shotgun with an eight-shot magazine than they would that Cooper's hawk, and probably for good reason. We're probably not that great a shot. But. <laughs> well, also they don't they don't have you know hundreds of thousands of years of evolution with shotguns like they do a Cooper's hawk. Right, right. No. Um, and again, we're going to talk about a study where we tried to uh, investigate that a little bit further. First, though, I want to talk with you, Dr. Bowl, about the population trends of some of these uh, raptor groups that we've talked about, and and I'll I'll get you going probably by saying that I look at things like the breeding bird survey. And it looks to me like if I if I look at Cooper's hawk trends, man, those Cooper hawk trends have had a really good past 30 years. Uh, so I know you've got some issues with how that data were collected. So explain to me why I'm, I may not be correct in assuming that those population trends are ascending. Okay. Uh, if you look at the breeding bird survey data for uh, Cooper's hawks and you look at the reliability of the data, it is almost always questionable. And this, this is true for most birds of prey because a breeding bird survey is done on a, a 25 mile route where you stop every half mile and you do a three minute count of all the birds you see. The interaction of those routes with uh, the breeding, with nesting sites for Cooper's hawks under most routes is going to be really low probability of detecting Cooper's hawks. And so in that case, you know, breeding bird surveys may be underestimating Cooper's hawks that are out there. One of the flip sides though, is that with urbanization, Cooper's hawks are one of the few raptors that have really adapted well to our urban landscapes because we have so many house sparrows and starlings and pigeons and doves uh, they capitalize on that. And so when you have breeding bird surveys that are going through these small towns or near them or by some of the woodlots, that's where you can inflate the number of Cooper's hawks. And, and I don't 
know that we really have a clear answer from the breeding bird surveys as to which direction that may be going. Uh, I just, I know that breeding bird surveys are really of a questionable value when it comes to raptors. And that's why for raptor species of conservation concern, they have different survey approaches that are focused explicitly on those individual species to get more reliable data. Um, and uh, talking about the, the bias, if you will, about how population surveys inflate or uh, deflate the values and so forth. We, we count raptors there at the research ranch bi-weekly. We have a 20 mile route that the technicians will drive. And we're always, uh, I'd say 98% of the time we see we see Budios and we see Harriers because as you pointed out, we just don't really have a great way of, of surveying, sensing, if you will, uh, Cooper's Hawks. So they're a cryptic bird. They're hiding out there in the brush of the, in the farming, in the ranching community in West Texas, uh, the common name for them will be blue darters because they're just darting between the mesquite trees as you yep. as you ride on your horse kind of thing. So, again, they're they're a tough bird to get a, a good handle on. Um, and, but you've also, I think you maybe uh, have mentioned something like hawk watch or something like that for uh, our Christmas bird count, some of those kind of things. How, how valuable are yeah, they in so the raptor world? Sure. Uh, Christmas bird counts are uh, in winter, usually for one full day, sometime in the week before or after Christmas, usually. Um, you have an area, and I think it's a 25-mile radius. Uh, I can't remember the exact size of the plot, but local birders will go out and canvas that area and do like a, a all-species survey in those areas. And those can be really useful because it gives you a consistent survey year after year after year. There are some problems with it in, in, in the uh, consistency with personnel and everything, but it's a, it's a consistent approach to sampling. One of the, the biases with that though is most of these are around, you know, either nature preserves or urban areas. And one of the things, like I said before, is the exhibitors have really adapted well to urbanization. And so, you know, I did my doctor, doctoral work on Cooper's Hawks in Tucson, and that population has really increased since I did my work there. And so you get the population started and the numbers can really increase over the last 20 years. And so that can be really kind of misleading in terms of Maybe not necessarily how many Cooper's hawks are out there, but where they're at and the potential risk they pose to prey species in certain areas. Um, the other one is at Hawk Watch. They have all across the country, uh, especially in the western states, but there's a few over in the eastern states. These sites that are monitored all through the fall uh, for migrating raptors, because raptors like to migrate along ridge lines, and there'll be these funnel points that they go through. And uh, the, the data from Hawkwatch, uh, which is the organization that coordinates all these and the, the Hawk uh, Migration Association of North America, uh, there is some evidence that certainly, I'm convinced that the, the data show that sharp shin hawk numbers are really decreasing. And there's surprisingly, I, I was really surprised by this, but there's good data that suggests that Cooper's hawk numbers are also decreasing based on migration. Um, now that could mean that 
for whatever reason, maybe Cooper's Hawks, the numbers are fine and they're just not migrating because of climate change or changing conditions where they are occupying the summer. So we don't really know what that is yet, but uh, when you look at the different methods of assessing populations at the continental scale, there really isn't a clear depiction of what's going on. It's really confusing right now for Cooper's Hawks. Okay, we're about the halfway mark time-wise for our podcast, so uh, we're going to get behind and move on beyond beyond the biology of those various groups that we've talked about. And we're going to talk about some of the research work that you some and I have been involved with. Yeah, some of the fun stuff that we've had. And, and I think, I'll say this on my, on my part, some of the, uh, again, appreciation for the other team and for some of the ways that you look at things and some of the studies that you've done, uh, again, just broadening my horizons and so forth and so uh, compliments to you and other peoples that are working on the Raptors like we've done. But we're going to talk about, uh, I think it was 2010, you talked about prey delivery and you and I conspired. We, we'd like to, we, we have some topography down here at the Research Ranch that we call Telemetry Ridge. And uh, the, the goal was we wanted to try to bring in a grad student to monitor Cooper's Hawks and look at how, how many times that they would have an attack and how many times those attack might be focused on uh, Cardinal versus a Bob White kind of thing. And you brought a young lady out there from Georgia by the name of Becky Perkins. So I tell did. us about, tell us about, and shout out to Becky. It's now Dr. Becky. Uh, shout out to Becky and uh, tell us about what her project involved. Well, she came out and we, uh, we were originally looking at trying to, to tag some birds, some raptors, and be able to watch them get locations on them and watch them from telemetry ridge. And I think at the time, you know, the, the technology just really wasn't up to what we needed at that time. And there's also some issues with trying to capture like the Northern Harriers and stuff. And so we kind of rebooted that uh, masters for her. And I think we did it for, I, I think it worked out a lot better for all of us as far as our understanding of things. But we got interested in looking at it from the perspective of, well, you know, Dale, you, you do some great talks on quail habitat with the softball example and everything. But one of the things that I think I, I brought to it was most of what we know about quail and their habitat use is kind of derived from how they respond when we flush them. And we see them flush from us a lot more than we see them flush from like a coyote or a hawk. And so we decided to, to do the study to look and see, is there a difference in how quail respond to different predation threats? And so we designed this study and we had the researcher as a kind of a control. That's what we knew when they go out and flush the quail to see how many are in a covey. So looking at survival to covey size and everything. And then we wanted to see how they responded to a hunter. So we had a, a person go out with a dog point quail, the quail would flush and, and that person would, would shoot off two rounds from a shotgun. We wanted to look at how they responded to uh, a nocturnal, like a, a mammalian predator. And our, at least my assumption was that most mammalian, mammalian predation is probably at night and probably using their nose or their ears. And so uh, what we did was we had Becky put on earphones and a uh, her telemetry receiver 
and uh, basically walk in at about three o'clock in the morning. We did this late in the morning. So when the when they flushed, this is all in winter. We didn't want the covey being broken up and being apart all night. So when they flushed, it'd be right about an hour or so before sunrise. And she would walk in while an observer set off a ways with a thermal scope and could see when the quail flushed. And by Becky following in with the transmitter, we presumed that would be kind of like a bobcat or a coyote creeping up and I'm following its nose. And then uh, when they flushed, the person with the thermal scope would tell Becky to stop and, and, and then would have her walk up and drop a pin where uh, the uh, quail had flushed from and they would go back in and, and do measurements there. And then the, the one related to the raptors is we had a, a colleague of ours uh, named Jim Walker from Amarillo and he was flying a goshawk at the time named Vinny. And a goshawk, this male goshawk was a bit bigger than a female Cooper's hawk and uh, was a very uh, well-trained bird. And uh, Jimmy normally hunted quail with him. And we came down and we did hunting trials where we would walk in on a covey of quail with, uh, with Vinny on the glove. And when those quail flushed, Vinny would pursue them. And in all these circumstances, what we did is we looked at how far from the disturbance or the threat the quail were when they flushed, how far they flew, and and we, we used the quail that, in the case with Vinny, we used the quail that he was chasing to see how far they flew. Uh, and then we also recorded the time so we could see, were they actually flying faster? And um, we ran like 60 plus trials on each one of these, except for the nighttime mammal when we did about 35 or 40 with that. Uh, and then we go back in in daylight or afterwards and uh, and record the vegetation characteristics at the flush site, at the site where the quail put in for cover, and then at random sites to compare those two. And let me add a little bit to that because one of the things that from the quail side we were very interested in is are we radio handicapping quail? This was a concept that Dr. Fred Guthrie brought up years ago about if you put a radio transmitter on a quail, have you predisposed them to a higher level of predation? And if so, then our survival estimates uh, that we base on telemetry are, are bogus. And so we were trying to do what we would call an in vivo test of radio handicapping. And so we would have a covey of quail out there with I see 10 birds in the covey and half of them had radio transmitters on. Now we didn't know which half, but Barrett, shout out to Barrett Kennecke, uh, who was our technician at the time. And he was uh, serving in the role of the hunter and also doing the radio telemetry work in this project. So beep, 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 Barrett follows this covey and okay, they're, they're <laughs> right up, they're right up here. And Jimmy and uh, Vinny are right behind Barrett. And so they get up there and when the quail flush, then Vinny takes off in pursuit. But we were curious to know, did could Vinny, via whatever means, could he detect uh, a radio collared quail as opposed to a, a non-radio marked quail? And we'll talk more about another study that y'all did here in just a minute. Yeah. But, uh, and Clint, I can still see me and you and Vinny and Becky and Barrett tromping around in what we call the South Andy CRP. Barrett says, these quail are right here. They're, they're not flying. <laughs> and uh, that didn't surprise you and Jimmy at all. So tell us, tell us about why uh, quail hesitated to flush in the presence of a raptor. 
Well, they know that, I mean, one of the reasons that they freeze up when you're pointing them with a dog is if they stay still and quiet, that there's a good chance that they're not going to get detected. And, you know, in those cases, when we walked up on those quail, they didn't want to flush because they knew that that was death from above. And, uh, you know, even when they did flush, they got away more often than not. But it also kind of shows, you know, if we hadn't, if, if Vinny had just been on a perch and kind of been moving around, had perched up, those quail would have frozen up and he probably wouldn't have seen them. You know, they, they flushed because we walked up and, and kind of made them flush. Um, and so I think that's just, it's part of their strategy just to, to sit tight and let the danger pass unless they just kind of lose their nerve or the danger gets too close. I still rib Barrett all the time about uh, he killed more quail with a size 12 boots than he ever did with a 12 gauge uh, because we'd be walking along there again. We knew those quail were right here. And then all of a sudden, oops, like he'd stepped on a grape kind of thing. And, and I mean, it was just, it was incredible as a bird hunter to see how those birds yeah. uh, would not flush in the presence of that hawk and i know that uh, jimmy walker had explained you see the same things when you're hunting ducks with prairie falcons so uh he'd say that the, the ducks would would not flush off the water they'd get out of the water and get in the grass but they weren't going to fly if they knew that prairie falcon was circling yeah. above them kind of thing yeah. so again so it the shows, same thing with prairie chickens shows you the respect again uh, and that arms race that we talked about that's been going on for thousands of years uh, between the 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 prey and the birds of prey yep. kind of thing. Uh, so one, one of the things I, uh, with uh, those raptor flushes, now Vinny was a really good quail hawk. I mean, they, Jimmy hunted a lot of quail with him and he knew what he was doing. We had, I don't have the exact number in front of me, uh, but we had close to 70 flushes with Vinny chasing the quail. And he caught six quail out of those 70 flushes. So he, he had a, about an 8% success rate, which I think surprised a lot of people. I was surprised that he didn't catch him on the wing, but he caught him on the ground. You know, I mean, they would, they would land yeah. and then he would be able to basically uh, catch them as they were going under he, a bush he, or something like that. Yeah, he caught a couple of them on the rise. When they were rising up, he got a couple of them quick. And then all the others he caught, you know, when they when they were landing basically when they were landing on the ground and he'd slam into them then and another thing and i you you probably attended nearly every flush i just was there on select occasions but uh it really made an impression on me about how long some of those flights were and how tortuous their paths were i mean this quail is flying at four feet above the ground that hawk's right above him right on his butt and uh, and again, incredible. I would say some of them 400 yard plus flights, and a Bob White really rarely flies over about 150 yards unless they've got a, a hawk on their butt, I guess. Yeah, and you know, not that many flights were really super long, but I mean, some were so long that we lost sight and we couldn't use those for our data because we lost track of, you know, we'd go over and we'd find Vinny, but we don't know where he was in relation to where the quail actually had landed. And so we couldn't use those data. Um, but yeah, some of those flights were really long. And, and one of the most critical lessons that I, as a quail hunter, learned is the value of escape cover. And escape cover, we talk about that in the quail world all the time. But in my opinion, in my 
opinion, we terribly underestimate what or overestimate what escape cover is. We're too liberal with our uh, our assessment of escape cover because we might say, well, this little scattered broomweed stand down here is escape cover or whatever. Most of the time, it was a shrub. It was a quail house, as I in my vernacular, uh, something like cat claw acacia, something like some of the taller uh, prickly pear, what I'd call the South Texas prickly pear. In other words, those quail seem to have certain endpoints in mind. What I would, being raised in Oklahoma and Tornado Alley, I'd have called them storm cellars. And it seemed as if those quail had those storm cellars in mind uh, when they flushed. I'm going to go to that cat claw acacia out there. And then what, about 35% of the time, the quail went in a hole. They went underground. And if you've done any assessments of cat claw acacia, you go up and look at one, they've nearly always got a rat hole down there. So again, that storm cellar, they went underground a third of the time to get away from that raptor. Yeah, that was and, incredible to me. And, and I've, uh, I don't have all the data in, but last winter and this winter, I was partnering with some different falconers that hunt quail. And I have them recording data for me as far as when the quail escapes what the escape cover was. And right now we're at about 70% of the escapes. And this is over in New Mexico and uh, Arizona. And so it's gambles and scaled quail. Uh, we're getting some on Bob White's over near Las Cruces, but I don't have those data yet. Um, but about 70% of those are in pack rat middens. Uh, some of them are in kangaroo rat middens, uh, Ord's kangaroo rats. Uh, and uh, cottontail holes in prickly pear patches. And I think that that might actually be underestimated because if they escape into prickly pear, a lot of times it's hard to tell if there's a rabbit hole in there or not. And so I think that you know, there, there's a couple of lessons on this and I'm, I'm getting all these data together to, to do a publication on it that I think is relevant. But I think that from, for management, it shows that you know, at least for quail, as far as escape cover, these wood rat middens appear to be really important for them. And the falconers that I've talked to, it's like, you know, a couple of them, uh, what, what some of them do is they will go up, they flush the quail and the quail fly and they'll, one of them, will, whichever one the hawk is chasing, it'll go into a pack rat midden. And the falconers will sometimes go up and they'll have like a, a hoe with them and they'll tear the midden apart to try to get the quail to flush again. And the ethics of that, I'm, I don't wanna get into that debate, but some do it and some don't. I think the management issue is that a lot of times from what other guys, from what the, some of the falconers tell me is, these quail, they know where those middens are and they can go out and if they don't tear those middens apart, those quail will reflush to that same midden on different days. So it's like they know where the safe houses are. And from a management perspective, if that's the case, if you go in and tear apart that midden, uh, depending on whether or not the pack rat rebuilds the midden or not, you may have just been destroying the safe house and a really important component of quail habitat uh, by doing that. So I think that uh, that's something that I, I kind of want to look at how fast these middens are rebuilt, if at all. Well, the other thing is for, for just landowners that are curious about or, or interested in managing for quail, I know a lot of times people don't like wood rats or, you know, pack rats, whatever they call them. Uh, but I think that the data I'm collecting right now shows pretty convincingly to me that 
that these are pretty important allies for, for quail. Well, certainly we have some years, I'm thinking of Borden County on a ranch that I've hunted out there. And, and then, I don't know, 20 years ago, man, there was a pack rat mid and I always say you need a quail house every softball throw apart. You could underhand throw a softball uh, <laughs> from pack rat mid to pack rat mid. But I haven't seen those those kind of uh, middens available in recent years. And our numbers, we, we monitor rodents here at the research ranch twice annually. And our rodent numbers since 2017 have just been in the tank. Uh, the wood rats are holding on a little bit better, and uh, I think it's the uh, hispid pocket mouse, but our cotton rats, and again, if you're talking about predator prey and prey switching and some of the things that we think about uh, relative to threats of, of hawks to quail, we want to have a lot of rodents around because uh, those those cotton rats are quail with fur, and in 2015-16, we estimated we had 22 cotton rats per acre. Yeah. I'd like to see those days again. When you can see cotton rats from a helicopter count, uh, things are looking good for quail. And we had that situation. In <laughs> I was back in, in those years, I was uh, actually flying a, a Harris's hawk uh, for falconry. And I'd go out in my normal rabbit hunting area and I, I couldn't be out 15 minutes and that hawk, and this would be broad daylight, and that hawk would have four cotton rats already. And I couldn't keep it off the cotton rats, so I just had to kind of hang it up for the day, that whole season, really. Yeah, there's a very high correlation. I want to say a, an R value of 0.98, which won't mean anything to most of you, but that's highly significant between our rodent abundance and our quail abundance. So one of these days, I'm going to have a, a rat appreciation day uh, there at the research ranch and uh, talk about the values of hopefully uh, being able to get our rodent numbers back up or where they should be. Um, I want to move on just a little bit, Clint. Talk about Becky's dissertation because y'all also did at least part of it at, at the research ranch and tried to follow up on that radio handicapping argument a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So after after we did Becky's thesis, uh, she decided she wanted to do a, a dissertation and get a PhD. And uh, we worked with you on this and worked with some other other falconers, and we tried to more explicitly address the issue of the radio handicapping because only taking six quail on her thesis, uh, only taking six quail with the hawk, that wasn't giving us any information we needed uh, for, for that question. And so what I tried to do was, was take the easy route initially. And uh, Dr. Dabbert up here at Texas Tech has a, a quail breeding facility. And we decided we, we'll, we'll just try this with some of his captive quail. And so he donated some birds to us and we were launching them in pairs at the same time, one with and one without a radio. And we flew that same goshawk on 10 trials of quail. And that goshawk got a quail every single time. And it didn't matter if it had a radio or not. The goshawk was just swiping those little butter balls out of the sky. And this is the same goshawk that was only having an 8% success on wild birds. And so we realized that, you know, we had a different issue here was the, the viability of captive red birds for release and, and their potential survival. And so we, we then ran uh, trials with uh, 10 wild quail and 10 captive reared quail. And it was a 70-30 split where the, the hawk went for the uh, captive reared quail over the wild quail. And so we realized that, you know, the, the a, the captive red quail just were not going to 
be viable for the question we wanted to ask, but also that it presented some different issues for uh, kind of captive rare and release for supplementing populations, which I don't need to go any farther into that. So then we went with just using wild quail and we conducted uh, uh, some of these trials um, at uh, the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch and some at another uh, private ranch. And what we did is we, with game launchers, we had a one wild quail with a radio and one without, and we randomized which side that bird would be on. We had them in these launchers. We had the person, and at this point, Vinny, the goshawk, was no longer with us. And so we had a, a sample of uh, Harris's hawks. And uh, the falconer would walk up behind these uh, launchers with the Harris's hawk, and at 20 meters away, so given the quail a pretty good head start, we would launch those two quail together. And then we had cameras recording to supplement our visual observations of which quail the hawk would go after. And we found that we had five Harris's hawks that we had flights on, and four of those Harris's hawks were all older birds and more experienced birds. And they selected the radio tagged quail anywhere from about 65 to 100% of the time. That young Harris hawk that was kind of new to the quail game, it was kind of a wash on him. And so he kind of biases our overall estimate low. But even with him in there, it's almost 70% selection for the radio tagged bird over the non-tagged bird, which if you take that, you know, if the hawk, if hawks have a greater success on radio tagged quail, that means that the survival data we are getting from these radio tagged studies is biased. Um, and that's not a death knell, it doesn't mean it's all wrong. It just means that we need to really consider what that bias rate is to try to maybe mentally uh, factor in a correction uh, rate on that. Um, and I can I can hear our colleagues down in the southeast, uh, the hairs raising on their neck because back in about 2005 when Dr. Guthrie introduced that phrase radio handicapping, I believe it was the fifth national quail symposium down in uh, Georgia and we're going to have some debates, point counterpoints about radio handicapping or not and uh, I'll call them a tall timbers crew. They were probably uh, other associates, but uh, led by the, the scientists down at Tall Timbers, and they had some huge, huge data sets dealing with leg-banded birds and, and computing survival rates from those, and they did not differ from their estimates based on uh, radio mark birds. So they were in the camp where radio handicapping is not an issue. Guthrie uh, didn't show up at the debate, but his data was suggesting again that um, the radio handicapping was an issue. Some of the work that we've done there at the research ranch, we think we've got an issue, maybe on the order of 15 to 18%. Uh, we still do radio telemetry because it's a valuable tool for us to assess our uh, nesting uh, locations and some of the other data points that we get from that. But it's, it is probably, we, in our opinion, on the western edge of the Bob White at least, there is some radio handicapping that's occurring. Yeah, um, I, I, I think one of the things, Dale, is that you know the radios that we were using were those collars, the necklaces. And, uh, you know, I I agree with you. There's there's value in these radio 
studies. I mean, and the value is greater than the cost. I mean, the to the the quail in terms of potential increased mortality. I just think that we need to be, you know, accept that and be aware of that and try to figure out what the correction values would be so we're not overestimating what natural mortality is uh, based on our data. Now, one of the things that does give me some pause is I saw pictures the other day of, like I said, our study was just using those radio necklaces. I saw pictures the other day of, you know, a, a quail that had a, a solar-powered GPS unit, and this GPS, the solar panel was like about an inch square on the back of this quail. And I see that and I'm like, well, you know, why don't you just put a neon sign that says, eat at Joe's? Uh, because, I mean, I just don't see how the reflection off that solar panel, the size of that solar panel, how that's not gonna catch a raptor's eye. Yeah, we've, we pretty well dismissed the idea of, uh, of the solar powered GPS units for quail. Uh, the package is too bit just too big and the attachment uh, too bulky in our opinion there are some people that are using it and i guess maybe have used it successfully but i wouldn't uh, like to think we we're getting good estimates of survival based on the on the gps yeah. collar now and again larger birds maybe prairie chickens other things like that sure oh you'd love to have them because of the amount of data you get uh, and so forth but sure the technology and, the battery is just not there yet for, for yeah, wildlife use yeah and and i think that you know Putting those, putting something like that on quail, you know, the, the value of data you get as far as the fine scale movement, movement rate, uh, and location data, that's great. And it may be really worth it. But when it comes to using data from those for uh, assessing natural predation, I think that's where the problem comes in. I've got to add one little note. You were talking about the pin raised birds versus the wild birds a while ago. And, and again, that's the most common question. When we go to the Dallas Safari Club and setting up a booth, 80% of the questions are from people along that I-35 corridor. Can I use pin-raised birds? And we say, you can use them, but you're not going to jumpstart a population with them. Uh, they're just too prone. And there's a number of reasons for this. We've talked about some of these in previous podcasts. But I used to take Bob White Brigade kids quail hunting as kind of a reward. And I might have five or six of these uh, young men and women, 15, 16 years old. And we'd start out the morning on Saturday hunting pin rays, uh, Bob Whites or Chuckers or something like that. And that's just so we could assess their uh, safety and, and get them used to what quail hunting is all about. And then we'd graduate after lunch. And this was over in Shackford County at the time. And we'd go after wild Bob Whites. And I'll never forget two young men walked up behind my dogs and that covey of Bob Whites took off. They didn't even fire a shot. They looked at one another and said, and we're supposed to hit those. <laughs> yeah. so, so that's the allure of wild birds over the pin raised birds. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, you know, with, with the, the pin raised birds, they're, they're, I think there's the potential there for use for, you know, supplementing populations. If there's some kind of conditioning that goes along with it. Um, you know, I, I've seen at the uh, uh, the quail facility here that where the, the outdoor aviary and you'll go out there in the winter and there'll be a, you know, a Cooper's hawk perched up on top of that looking down at the quail. You know, it's like the little kid outside the candy store that can't get in or anything. Um, but the quail are down there walking around into the, the hawk and they're not getting any of that negative enforcement that that is a really bad thing. You don't want that around. And so 
you know, are they, I kind of question, are they being conditioned inadvertently to being in that safe space and that hawk's perched up there? So they just kind of don't recognize that as the threat it would be once they get released. Um, yeah. And so there's, I think there's some maybe different ways. They, they've done some work with like parrot, captive red parrot releases to increase their survival. I think the thing with game birds is, is it, is it really something that's worth the effort and time needed uh, to be successful with that? You know, and, and well, that's, that's situational. And I hope we don't get to that point, but I tell you the last couple of years has, have made uh, a lot of our quail hunters and uh, people interested in quail. Uh, that's all they have to go for, you know, is pin raised quail. And they realize it's like kissing your sister, but we just don't have the wild birds right now. And we're, we're hoping uh, for that, get out of this La Nina weather pattern and be able to get back to 2015, 16 levels. So we've got to remain optimistic about that. Um, kind of bringing this to a close. Oh, one last thing. Uh, I know you've done some work with prairie chickens, uh, Clint, and, and I want to refer to a colleague of mine, uh, Dick Wilberforce, who's a photographer, used to live up in Canadian, Texas, and used to give tours on of Lex booming grounds out there. And he would say that when a when a red-tailed hawk would fly by or something like that would fly, so one of the one of the smaller bootios that those prairie chickens wouldn't wouldn't be disturbed. But they said, you show them show them a ferruginous hawk, or you show them a golden eagle, and they were headed for cover, which means they can detect those threats and and differentiate those threats from a pretty good distance. Have you seen that in some of your work too? Yeah, we, I had a, a master student here named Adam Bainey, who's now, I think he's uh, he's in either the non-game, head non-game person or head game bird person for Colorado Division of Wildlife. Um, but what Adam did is we put cameras up at Prairie Chicken Lex, and then he also did uh, direct observations in the mornings at Prairie Chicken Lex. Uh, and what we were looking at was how they responded to different predators coming in, and that that included coyotes. Um, and what we found was a pretty strong evidence that they can assess the the risk an individual raptor type presents them. Um, now, out there, we did not have any exhibitors come in. You might have had one, but nothing that we could really say anything about. But we had you know, red-tailed hawks, fruginous hawks, uh, Swainson's hawks. We had harriers, we had um, uh, falcons. And we had, we also looked at how they responded to ravens and turkey vultures. You know, and the turkey vultures and ravens are very similar size to the, the hunting predators. And we found the prey chickens, if it's a vulture, if it's a raven, they pretty much ignore them. If it's a, a budio hawk, like a Swainson's hawk or a red tail just flying around, they pretty much ignore them. Uh, if the Swainson's hawk or red tail comes in after them, which happened on occasion, they would come in and kind of make a play. Just, I, th I think it's kind of that, just testing the waters to see if there's somebody out there that's just, you know, hampered somehow. Uh, if they came in on the lek, the prairie chickens would all flush. And I actually have it on video somewhere that where there's this one Swainson's hawk came in, flushed all the prairie chickens off the lek and it just landed and stood in the middle of this lecking ground. And within 15 minutes, all those prairie chickens were back and dancing with this Swainson's hawk standing right in the middle of all of them. You know, and those chickens knew they could outfly that Swainson's hawk if it 
decided to make a play at one of them, they could outfly it. And they were they were more hormonally driven uh, than uh, wary of that predator. When a falcon came, well, when, when a, a, a harrier came in, uh, they would either ignore or they would sometimes flush, but come back pretty quickly. And, you know, a prairie chicken is really, really big game for a harrier. A harrier looks big, but it's not a very large bird mass-wise, and they don't really have really big, powerful feet like an eagle or a ferruginous hawk would have. Um, when falcons came in, it got really interesting because if those prairie chickens had shovels, they'd be using them. They would just flatten themselves out on the lek and just, I mean, just try to dig a foxhole. And the falcons, because the falcons don't like to hit things on the ground, um, they try to, they'll swoop down low like a pendulum swing and then come back and just repeatedly swooping at them, trying to get those birds to flush up in the air. Because when they're up in the air, that's when the falcons will try to hit them. And the prairie chickens would just lock up and stay on the ground. Once in a while, one would lose its nerve. Uh, and after the falcon did a swoop, it would take off and try to fly in the different direction and then just crash back down to the ground and try to dig a hole again. So it was, it was pretty obvious. Uh, we published this, I think, in the Wildlife Society Bulletin or Journal of Wildlife Management uh, with all those data in it. But it was pretty clear they can discern the different threats uh, of those different birds. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's really, that's really intriguing to me. And again, as, as a quail hunter and a quail researcher, but as a quail hunter, I encourage anybody that has a chance to hunt with a falconer, take them out to your favorite spot, enjoy them for a day, carry them around. And you're going to learn it. You just pay attention to, to the uh, interactions between the raptor and the quail. And again, what type of habitat they're selecting. And you're going to have a much better eye for what kind of habitat you want. Uh, just like you were talking about not destroying those pack rat middens. You don't, you don't want to lay your hands on a lope bush or a cat claw acacia because you'll appreciate how valuable those species are to you and your quail at storm shelters. So there's always some real lessons if, if you're ready to... Uh, to be with somebody like that and learn from them. Well, Clint, we've talked for another hour again. We still didn't get to uh, falconry. So uh, I guess we're gonna have to do that some other point in time, but is there anything else that uh, you'd like to share with our listeners today? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I do encourage them to uh, think about it more from that community level than just the concern for the quail, which, yeah, quail, there, there is concern for them. And, and I certainly recognize that, but I kind of look at, I try to look at things more from the whole community dynamics than just a single species management. And these quail and Cooper's hawks and harriers and everybody, they've been getting along or not getting along, but they've been surviving in coexistence long, long before we ever showed up on the scene. Um, and I try to keep that in mind and not hold any one of them up to be the bad guy or the good guy or anything. It's just, that's that's nature out there. And I enjoy all aspects of it. And uh, I'd, I'd encourage others to kind of maybe try to think about it from that perspective as well. Well, we've surely enjoyed having you on the program today, and I look forward to getting you back down to the research ranch and 
for between the two of us discovering the next Becky Perkins and being able to follow up on some of the other questions I know that you and I would would be able to come up with. Uh, so thank you for your time today. I'll uh, Gary, I'm about to send it to you back in the studio today. I would re encourage our um, listeners to go back and uh, go to our uh, re our website, quailresearch.org. There's a webisode called Managing Quail Habitat to Reduce Raptor Predation. And in that, we'll talk more about Vinny, but we'll talk about the types of habitat and the types of shrub species. Again, as a manager, you, you ought to be paying real close attention to and your grazing pressure and other things that are going to tip the odds towards the predator and away from the quail. And I tell people, quail can hold their own in a fair fight, but too often we tip the odds to the favor of the predator. And we do that with our brush management or grazing management or something like that. So appreciate the role that predation has played in the in our uh, wondrous bob white and blue quail that we have in West Texas. And I look forward to talking with all of you again next month. Thank you so much, Dr. Dale. And thank you, Dr. Clint Bowl. Great insights on a most interesting topic. We hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast and conversation. For more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and past episodes, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner of the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.